sorry about that. So record has, hit, has been hit, any event. So um, we met with Azeem, he's got a, his, his newsletter, The Exponential View, um, and I'll give him a more um, formal introduction when I'm done with my comments, but very excited to have him here on the call. Before we get into uh, the more interesting stuff from Azeem, which is you know the exciting things in, in the world and technology and looking out um, you know, 10 years, we're gonna have to focus on uh, the short term, I guess, and trade apocalypse. Um, and what I would call what we think is a violent slowing pace of returns. I think the, the punchline from us is going to be, you know, obviously trade is having an impact on the market near term, but people have to remember that the starting position wasn't that great. And that's something we're going to kind of come, come to. So let's just go through a few charts. First and foremost, I just want to highlight uh, 2002, the Bush Steel tariffs, which it interestingly happened in the beginning of March, get about a six month decline in the market and the dollar. So a weaker dollar on trade fears is not necessarily a positive or an offset to, um, um, uh, well, let me rephrase that, a weaker dollar is not going to lead to a higher potentially S&P like it has over the last, called six months, if it's related to increasing trade fears. One thing I should mention here during this period that was the Gulf War period, so obviously that's probably had some impact. Some of the nitty gritty, um, Don Strassheim from our China team and Terry Haynes from our policy team both put out a, a note on this. Their, their conclusion is more bark than bite. Um, first and foremost, nothing's going to change as far as walking back the policy. And I think Trump's tweet uh, overnight made that clear. So they've been working on this for a year. The across-the-board cut is uh, an issue, um, you know, because you're not differentiating between really bad actors, minor violation, innocent bystanders, et cetera. So that's striking. But it does seem likely, and I put this uh, here, that Trump and uh, Wilbur Ross will get to play it both ways in which they can pick and choose because that's something that's uh, part of the exemptions and exclusions process. And so I guess that's kind of the maybe not as negative case as it relates to trade is that it's not necessarily going to be across the board and lead to the hopefully not lead to the domino effect. So these are the bullets, and if you want the slides, I'll send them to you later with the – uh, so you can check them out yourself. Now let's get to the first and foremost, if tariffs do lead to higher inflation per unit of growth, which seems likely, and as Kristen stated, they are stagflationary, that does add to price pressure. So it's all the more likely that the Fed is likely to raise hikes four times this year, and I think that's something that the market is digesting right now. If you look at this bottom left-hand chart, U.S. import prices – with the weak dollar and now potentially other factors have already been increasing, which do suggest continually higher core CPI, which is that blue line, longer term. On the right-hand chart is our high relative to low foreign sales stocks. Despite a declining U.S. dollar, at least over the last few days, you saw the high foreign sales stocks get decimated. Now, I would say to this, uh, maybe that's an overreaction to the across-the-board hike, and as it starts to differentiate, there might be an opportunity here um, to come back to some of these names. Uh, at least from a stock-by-stock -stock basis. So that's something I think investors should be focused on uh, if, in fact, we do move away from across the board into more, you know, differentiated kind of trade. This I want to get to the starting position, though. Um, and the starting position is tightening financial condition, conditions. And as New York Fed President Dudley defined yesterday, gradual is for hikes in 2018. And so there's been investors kind of doing this kind of 
using uh, gradual as some type of life jacket where it means that it's going to lead to higher multiples and easy financial conditions. Not necessarily the case. I mean, I think four hikes this year, and if gradual means an additional three to four hikes next year, it's probably a lot more hawkish than what the market is pricing in. And it doesn't necessarily, and it won't lead to an easing of financial conditions. So what we did here is we put the Bloomberg's financial conditions by component, and every one of them has tightened over the last month. I don't think what Dudley is describing is going to lead to a snapback in financial conditions. So there's other ways that it could happen, but it seems unlikely. So this kind of gets to our violent slowing pace of returns in the context of, yeah, we still have good earnings growth. We have some more event risk, but there's not going to be a change in financial condition, especially if you have higher inflation per unit of growth, which is the import prices, and Dudley defining what gradual actually is. Some clients have actually talked about the potential for weaker economic growth, which was something that happened this week with some weaker than expected PMIs, putting pressure on 10-year yields, obviously to the downside, and that potentially leading to uh, a good um, uh, backdrop for risk assets or a return to the highs. We disagree with that because the type of growth that we're talking about right now is so strong that it's not going to change monetary policy at all. You know, this is the estimates for the next two years, 3.9, 3.9. If global growth peaks and doesn't roll over significantly, those estimates are not going to change, which does suggest that there's still upward pressure on rates, all things equal. Additionally, there's still a lot of pressure on wage growth. The bottom charts from the uh, conference board this week, the gray line is consumer conference board income expectations relative to average hourly earnings growth uh, would suggest average hourly earnings growth is going to move higher, which means the Fed's going to continue to tighten along its path. And so slowing economic growth with the Fed still tightening or topping is not a good thing for risk assets. So bad is not good. Most importantly on this point is the horse has already left the barn. So what I'm showing you on this chart is this is money supply growth, and this is global. So using U.S., China, Eurozone, Japan, we have it advanced 18 months versus the MSCI World Index. You can see there's a weak relationship longer term, but over the last few years it's been relatively strong. It does suggest that stocks – case of returns are going to slow. This will be offset maybe from earnings in the U.S., but uh, I don't think there's any case of a slowing economic growth that's going to reverse this trend, in which case um, weak economic growth would not be a positive for risk assets. Short-term problem, uh, LIBOR OAS, it's spiked. Um, it's actually higher as of, uh, I think this is, yes, this is current. Uh, so back to 2016 recession-level feels, or when I say 2016, global recessionary fears. Remember, um, a third of all businesses' loans are linked to LIBOR, as are most student loans, and 90% of leveraged loan market. At the same time, New York Stock Exchange margin debt as a percentage of market cap is back at high levels. So you have this tightening of financial conditions. You have people that are all in on the market, and that creates some short-term issues for stocks, obviously, if, in fact, the narrative changes, which it seems to be. Coming back to the starting position, I think this is critical for investors to understand when thinking about the multiple. When the unemployment rate troughs, and this is the gray line is the unemployment rate inverted here, that's when multiples tend to peak. What happens around this time, it's also the time where the Fed is trying to push back against further declines in the unemployment rate. They're trying to slow the pace of the economy to rein in inflation. That typically happens, that typically means that they want to slow that decline in the unemployment rate and ultimately if inflation becomes too much of an issue, not suggesting it will, increase the unemployment rate. And so that's typically why you see multiples starting to 
contract at this point in the cycle. It doesn't mean the market has to go down significantly. That would happen if we went into a recession, but it kind of gets to my point that this may not just be trade-related. This might have a lot to do with the fact that we were coming from a poor starting position. Lastly, and I'm going to get through this quickly, I do think it's interesting that Europe, gray line over here, has just been much weaker than the U.S. A lot of people were invested in Europe. It was apparently supposed to melt up, not happening at all. Japan's been weak. Now the U.S. is finally rolling over. This is your relative returns of the U.S. Oh, what did I do there? Of the U.S. relative to Japan and Europe, significantly outperforming. But as I show on the narrow, on the, I'm sorry, on the bottom chart, it has been a very narrow advance. So S&P cap weighted significantly outperforming equally weighted, which means a narrow advance, if risk premiums continue to go up, would mean a narrow drop. So the things that let us up off the bottom, which is your FANG, could potentially lead us on a downside. So if you're looking to hedge, I would be hedging in the things that have gone up the most now if you're worried about a sustained move lower in stocks or increase in risk premiums. Bottom line here, it's a violent pace of slowing returns. The offset to what I would suspect is higher volatility and lower multiples, which is a left-hand chart, is the extraordinary earnings backdrop. It's going to continue to be that way. You look at 158 this year, uh, 174 next year earnings. That's really strong numbers. Buybacks are a massive support. That's probably going to continue, especially after you hear what Zim has to say later. Um, that suggests uh, some stability for the market. And lastly, just if we return to normal, I just want to throw out some numbers there. Here, if you assume 15 times on the market, which is the multiple moving back to normalcy, and by the way, we started the year with a lot of things on the kind of outlier, whether it be the multiple, the VIX, the term premium, 10-year yields, they're all here on the outside, which that's your starting position being poor and are now moving back to normalcy. So if you come all the way back, which I don't think is the case, 15 times 174, which is your 19 earnings, means 26.10 on the market, so you're kind of near fair value, still above on 20 on on 2018 numbers. Don't think we're getting there um, to 15 times, but just want to get those numbers out to everybody. So that's my part of everything. I want to go to Azim now because that's the most important thing. Azim, I went a little bit longer. I apologize, but that's because the market is doing a little, going a little haywire on us this week. Um, so to, to recap, Azim, uh, Azir, he runs the Exponential View. It's a newsletter looking for how our world is changing as a result of technology. Uh, this is built, uh, built on back of 20 years as an entrepreneur, startup investor, corporate innovator, and journalist. Uh, I think, you know, he's a real-world investor now and advisor. He's a senior advisor to to the Chief uh, Technology Officer of Accenture, focusing on frontier technologies. He's a, also a venture partner at new early stage technology venture capital firm, Kindred Ventures. Uh, he advises the Harvard Business Review, the, Hux, the Huxley Summit, and several founders and disruptors in technology. So very excited to have Azeem. Um, thanks for coming on. And uh, I'm gonna turn it, over, uh, turn it over to you, Azeem. Thank you. Great, well, thank you, Dennis. And thanks for inviting me. Can I check that you can hear me clearly? We can. I, at least I can. I assume that's a rest for everybody. So yes. Okay. I got a fantastic. thumbs up. We're good. Okay. Great. Great. So, so I'm just going to take a, a few minutes um, to to talk about uh, exponential technology convergence, which is the the area that I've been looking at for the last few years, um, and trying to understand uh, what that's going to mean for uh, society in the broadest sense. Uh, thanks for advancing the slides. I forgot about that. So I yeah. put this out in my, in my weekly newsletter, Exponential View. Um, it reaches about 25,000 subscribers. It's very heavily read in the startup and venture capital community, um, but increasingly being read by um, analysts and people in uh, po politicians and in policy and academia. I'm always happy to have more subscribers. It's, it's my catnip. 
Um, so, so if we skip forward to the to the next slide, please, Dennis. Um, you know, we, we are living in the age of technology, and I think we're familiar with this particular uh, chart, which is showing the what happened over the last 10 years to the world's largest companies, and how uh, back in 2007, the largest companies were in general industrial era uh, firms like um, Exxon and General Electric, Bank of America, Procter and Gamble, and in a short 10-year period, they were overtaken by uh, these very large. Uh, technology companies, Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, Facebook. Um, and if we included the big Chinese firms, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, um, they would be in the top of this list. So we've really seen a displacement of the industrial age by the um, information age. Uh, and one of the key things about many of these large um, information age companies uh, is that they're actually based around the the strength of customer data and their application of machine learning or AI technology, something I'll get into in a later slide. If we can see the next slide, please. Um, so the, the question that I want to lay out today is, what does that next 10 years look like, the gray box, right? What does the world look like in, in the next decade? And, and it's very dangerous to make predictions about the future. Um, I mean, one minor prediction, I don't think we'll see a Bank of America or a, a Citigroup coming back into the top five largest companies uh, in the world. But what I will try to do is, is lay out the trends um, that I see within the technology space and, and the implications of some of those trends. So if we get to the next slide, um, the critical thing here is that in, in the technology industry, we see a range of uh, what I would call exponential technologies. These are technologies that improve at 10% every year at a fixed cost. And that 10% compounds um, year on year. And the best example of an exponential technology is, uh, is Moore's Law, which for a good 60 years, um, essentially, to, to put it simply, delivered a 50 to 60% annual improvement in the amount of compute, computer processing delivered for a, a dollar. And that 60% compounding uh, for five, five or six decades created a tremendous amount of value. But Moore's law isn't the only uh, exponential technology. Um, there is Crider's law, which describes how much data you can store on a uh, physical uh, uh, storage medium. Um, Keck's law, which was about the uh, amount of bandwidth data you can fit down a, a bearer. Uh, Keck's law has actually recently petered out after 30 years of uh, 30 to 40 years of 29% annual improvement. Um, but we're also starting to see exponential technologies um, rise in. in sectors outside of semiconductors and communications. So for example, um, price performance of lithium ion batteries uh, is improving at 19 to 20% um, every year uh, and has been doing that historically for the past few years. So we do see a number of uh, technologies that improve at this exponential rate. If we look at, um, if we go to the next slide, if we look at the um, what that means in terms of value creation, it's useful to look back at the history of the PC and the PC industry, where we combined the Moore's law um, exponential improvement in processing with um, a positive feedback loop. And that feedback loop ran like this. Um, the CPUs uh, got better. If you look at the left-hand box in gray mark CPU, they got better. That allowed Microsoft to improve the quality of the operating system. That improved operating system allowed better software to be written. That better software had two effects, both of which drove the demand for compute. One was that um, 
the, the improved software actually reduced the performance of computers. We're all familiar with that, right? The old computer is slower, and that reduced performance created a pull from the market to improve, to Intel, to improve processing. But the second part of the feedback loop, of course, was that better software, better operating systems meant the machines were more appealing, and that just drove PC demand. And if we think about what happened between the mid-70s and uh, 2000, the year 2000, we created these massive companies like Intel and Microsoft, but also entirely new industries, PCs, peripherals, networking software, video games, and there was significant impact on other industries. Now, if we jump to the next slide, please. So since the, that PC um, uh, revolution, we've also had the mobile revolution. And, and I think a few of us, uh, Dennis and myself, who are on the perhaps the older side of this call, will remember life in the picture above, which is before you had the iPhone, you had all these other devices like the Walkman and the video camera. Um, in being able to miniaturize and converge a range of different technologies and produce the iPhone, we created an entirely new uh, multi-hundred billion dollar uh, uh, mobile ecosystem uh, that created value not just for, uh, for phone manufacturers and their component makers, but also for software uh, companies. It didn't all go ultimately to Apple. Um, if we could see the next slide. Now, 10 years, is, uh, 10 years when you have uh, exponential uh, improvements in, in that input is, is a long time, and it's worth casting our minds back to where the world was a decade ago. YouTube was about 14% of its current size. Facebook, absolutely tiny. Um, Netflix didn't even exist. I mean, Netflix this week announced it was going to spend several billion dollars on 700 new original shows this year, um, and, and yet didn't exist a decade ago. But a couple of things that are worth looking at um, are the, just take a look at the bottom line, which is the data created annually. So the amount of data that we are generating across these multiple apps is benefiting from that positive feedback loop. And we've seen a 200-fold increase in the amount of data that is produced by computer systems in that decade. And my argument will be that we'll see more than 200-fold increase over the next decade. So, so what's going on right now? If we jump to the next slide, um, you know, Moore's law is, is very interesting because Moore's law um, has started to slow down. And in fact, it's been declared dead. Um, and, and it is true that the blue line, which shows um, the Moore's law trend back about 25 years, has started to tail off. But what's intriguing is that we don't, we have got a new style of uh, demand for compute. Uh, because we've moved to a world of machine learning and artificial intelligence, and that needs a different type of processor. And what served that need has been the GPU, which is shown in the green line. What's happening with GPU performance is that it's improving at this 1.5x year on year. So it's like we've left the last paradigm of technology, which was the Moore's law on the CPU, and we've moved to the GPUs that are improving 1.5x, so this exponential trend continues. Um, but, but actually, the demand for compute for AI is so large that there's a new trend emerging. And if we get to the next slide, which is um, beyond GPUs is dedicated silicon for machine learning, built by companies like Google and by GraphCore, which is a privately held company in the UK. And they're showing a 10 to 1,000 times improvement on current GPUs for deep learning today. So that is well above the typical trend line. And that's being driven by this massive demand for AI, uh, which is you know, the software glue that binds services together. 
And if we jump to the next slide, and when I when I survey technologies, what I noticed was that this is this sort of radical improvement is happening not just in silicon. It's also happening in, in, for example, the cost of genome sequencing. So back in 2001, it cost about $100 million to sequence a genome, which is essentially to turn a genome from wet proteins into digital data that can be manipulated. Um, it now costs about $1,000 to do that. And you can see the, the pink historical Moore's Law trend line um, and see that the price performance on genome sequencing is, is moving much faster than historical Moore's Law the number of startups trying to get that, that price down from $1,000 to a couple of dollars. Um, and if we go out, grab to the next slide. Um, and, and we're also seeing it on some market, uh, in some sort of market demand um, areas as well. So thinking about the number of connected devices, you'll have heard of Internet of Things. Um, well, th we passed a key milestone a few years ago when there was more than one Internet connected device per human. Um, that number is growing by this particular estimate at 17% CAGA um, with really no signs of stopping with a view that by 2025, there will be 10 connected internet devices per human uh, on, on the planet. And many of us on this call will have more than 10 devices um, and in our homes um, as we speak. Right, and great, thank you. The next slide, yeah. So, um, but it's also happening within, within a key area of um, battery storage and lithium ion batteries. This is critical because this is a technology that will enable us to have electric vehicles. It will also enable us to have drones that can uh, behave autonomously. Now, lithium ion battery pricing has been declining at about 19% year on year on a dollar per kilowatt hour basis. And that trend line is, is extrapolated by Bloomberg New Energy Finance here in the, in the dash line. But just last week, if we see the next slide, um, Morgan Stanley forecast a 45% decline over the next couple of years, which is ahead of the, the trend line um, that I showed you. Um, I think we may have skipped a slide, Dennis. Let's not worry about this slide. Um, yeah, there it is. There's the, there's the trend line. Okay, great. So if we just skip ahead two slides, yeah, and to the next one, that's perfect. So what I see in the market is a lot of convergent exponential feedback loops, and these feedback loops are happening in independent technologies that are often not dependent on the same um, core physical science, um, resources, engineering, um, or indeed pools of capital. Okay, so if we jump to the, to the next slide. Um, and, and what I see in, in, in my world, which tends to be you know, small, high-growth companies, is that these feedback loops create non-linear results that are very hard to predict. And, and a great example is just look at what's happened with Alibaba's um, single day, singles day. It's a special promotional day they have and what's happened on the sales. When they launched this six years ago, they sold about $800 million worth of products in a day. Last year, they sold more than $25 billion, and it represents a 77% CAGA uh, over that period of time. And this is the kind of unexpected results, nonlinear result that you get when you combine the feedback loops with these exponential technologies. If we jump to the next slide. So, um, if I look forward, I'll give you an example of this. What happens when we take machine learning computation with the Internet of Things and connected devices and we look out 10 years? Well, those two trend lines are moving at a rate of 60x for computation um, and 5x for IoT devices over the next 10 years, which means 300-fold increase in the amount of IoT computes that could be available in 2028. And the question is, what does that mean in terms of value creation in application systems, infrastructure, and business models? 
and also curious second order effects like network usage and power utilization and cyber security. Um, if we jump to the next slide, and, and just to prove how difficult it is to, is to predict when you have these learning rates and positive feedback loops, just two charts. The one on the left is um, looking at historical predictions by the IEA on the number of photovoltaic solar uh, uh, gigawatts of added capacity annually. And the horizontal lines are the IEA's predictions, and the black line is the reality. And what you see is they have some of the, a forecaster who Hello. But the second, the second area. Hold on, Azim. Yeah. You cut out there for a second, so why don't you come back uh, to uh, for about thirty seconds there? So. Okay. Jump no right back. Yeah, yeah. So if we look back at the um, at this this chart, the one on the left shows the IEA's forecast for um, how much uh, solar photovoltaic um, power additions and gigawatts of added capacity there will be every year, um, and what you note is that. The black line shows what really happened, and their forecasts have been systemically wrong because there is this um, exponential rate of the decline of cost of um, PV additions. And the similar thing is what's happening on the right, which are the predictions from a range of different places of the, the forecast number of electric vehicles on the road. Um, and what you see consistently across OPEC and oil majors and Bloomberg is they're revising their forecasts upwards and upwards and upwards. And the one prediction I will make is that when Bloomberg and BP come out with their predictions this time next year, they will have pushed their, their lines further up um, again because of these feedback loops. Okay, just Dennis, last couple of slides. I just want to talk about two intangibles here, uh, two, two issues here. So one is that we have seen a tremendous shift from in the economy uh, as we have moved from the industrial age to the information age. And that shift is that um, the components of value that are held in intangible assets versus intangible assets has swung definitively to the red bar, which is intangible assets. So it's no longer plant machinery and factories and physical stock. It is patents, know-how, software, brand, customer data. And an intangible economy behaves very differently to a tangible economy. You know, there are these sunk cost investments, um, these businesses are highly scalable, they're winner-take-all, um, they lend themselves to lots of synergies, um, and, and what it suggests is that the way that these businesses will need to be financed is through a venture capital startup building model than a traditional capital model, and this is, I think, a pretty interesting trend. The, the final one is um, uh, area is what happens to the workforce under these um, scenarios of rapid improvement of, of kind of core technologies and automation um, and the threat to business models uh, looks like it's going to restructure work. And I certainly see that from my vantage point within Accenture. And one question is how will economies adapt? And I think there are two main trends here. So one trend is automation, this broad automation leading to widespread job displacement. McKinsey reckons 800 million global job changes by 2030 with nearly 400 million workers needing to retrain. Um, and we're also seeing the platformization of work, which is the move from jobs for life or traditional jobs to freelance work over thick platforms like Uber, uh, with some estimates suggesting that about 40 million Americans will be using a kind of freelance work mediated by platforms by 2020. And so the question is, which economies and workforces can adapt to these changes? 
is it the US model, which is business centric, highly agile, lower friction, no room for kind of workers' rights and great market mechanisms? Or will it be the European model where there's a high tr higher trust, higher broad education levels, stronger safety nets, and greater institutional mechanisms for workers and firms to have a dialogue? And my sense is that given the level of strain and stress this is going to put on the political economy, that dialogue is going to be key to make my making the change and the shift to the information economy. So I'm somewhat more optimistic about European uh, economies being able to handle this change over the next 10 to 15 years. So um, I, I, I don't know if you saw, and, and so just that I believe you're that is done with my the presentation. Yeah. So I'm ready to chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would say I, I, I don't know if you saw. I just typed in a little bit of a joke there with the U.S. model, and I just wrote trade wars. That's going to be our <laughs> way of hand, handling it, I guess. Um, you're just your comments on economy's ability to handle it. It's funny we had a speaker on Bruno Marseille last week who was talking about the dawn of Eurasia and the pivot of Europe to to Asia um, on a go forward basis. So while we're the U.S. model is dealing with it a different way. Europe has some of these safety nets, as you imagine, as you, I'm sorry, as you mentioned, and then of course they're maybe doing a little bit different, which is pivoting towards Asia. And it's a long-winded way of saying uh, Europe is increasingly, despite what might happen in the election this weekend, increasingly looking like a beacon of uh, safety, um, which is Euro positive. As a side note, let's go to some um, some questions. So, one, it, it ties into your intangible comments, which is going to get into your. Mm -hmm. So you have obviously. As you out, as you outline, you have this explosion in data, technology, et cetera. Um, the, uh, uh, the amount of data that's going to be computed over the next 10 years is obviously it's going to skyrocket. So I'm thinking of the chart of 2018 to 2028, what the top 10 companies look like. And uh, given the intangible con uh, economy, given that it's so hard for companies to, uh, you know, the sunk cost problem, which you mentioned, Mm -hmm. So the regular old companies might be more reluctant to invest in an intangible because of that sunk cost, which creates a lot of risk, where there's other companies like Amazon, Google, et cetera, are just going to continue to do it. It's a long-winded way of saying, is it a constant model of startups just being gobbled up by whatever's successful, being gobbled up by Amazon, et cetera, for the next 10 years? Do you really – like, how do you think that's going to play out as you think about the companies in the 10 years from now? Will it be the yeah. same group? It's a really great. It's a really great question, and we just this week saw Amazon acquire uh, for a billion dollars Ring, a very young company that makes a smart doorbell. Uh, and and I would I would say that um, you know the, the risks to these large companies are mostly uh, over the next ten years. They're mostly going to be regulatory rather than competitive. Um, it, even for the greatest startup that might be waiting in the wings. Um, it, it takes great more than 10 years to get to a $500 billion valuation or a trillion dollar valuation, which is what you'd need to, to do to bump into these companies. So while I'm optimistic in the long term that they can be, there can be some healthy competition about their franchises over that 10-year period, um, I don't think it is, it is as likely. Um, of those companies, the, 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 ones that, that, the one that really sticks out for me is, is Amazon and Amazon's um, the amount of room Amazon has to run to grow both its traditional business of, of retail in the U.S. and beyond. I mean, it has a very small share of international uh, retail, a retail outside mm -hmm. of the U.S., um, but it also has new lines of business that are um, 
you know, increasingly doing well, like Amazon uh, Web Services. Um, so so the, the, the primary risk, I suspect, is, is regulatory. Um, we will see, I, I'm sure, some breakthrough startups that will look like the next Facebook, as it were. Um, but in the time horizon that we're, we're discussing, I'm not sure if they will have yet found their way into the top 10. Um, it's a question I ask uh, of every technology person that comes on, just because you brought it, you thought that Amazon, since you just clicked in my head, Jeff Bezos always asked the question, what's not going to be different in the next 10 years, right? <laughs> so there's a lot of things that are going to change. What's not going to be different? And how do you maybe potentially monetize that? So what are you optimizing for? What are the investments you're looking at that might even be leveraged to that? Well, you know, I think the, the, the thing is these trends take a lot of time to, a long time to run. And, you know, I'm not a public markets investor. I don't know how to yeah. read um, the sentiment elsewhere. But, you know, you can see that the demand for compute is going to be very, very significant. So where there are public companies who are producing compute, compute cycles, whether it's the, you know, the silicon chips, silicon wafers, or it's actually the chips, or it's the tools around it, um, those are going to be uh, in continuously great, uh, great demand. Um, and I think that those trends continue. And I also think the trends of companies moving their value closer towards um, the data and the application of machine learning and AI to data uh, will, will continue. Because while these top five companies like Apple and Microsoft and so on have done this, um, the old industrial companies, which who still have significant franchises, are in the process of doing their IT upgrades to, to do that. Um, so when we look into this in five or six years time, and we look into the operations of those companies, I think many, many more of them will look like an Uber or an Amazon or a Facebook than currently do today. Um, so as far as the way you're thinking about investing in companies right now, is it the, um, you know, for lack of a better term, spray and pray approach, or, and I know that's a gross simplification because, it, it, like you said, it's moving so quickly. You know, it's tough to estimate. You, you brought up the the, uh, the sales day in China and uh, or singles day, right? I think it's called. Um, so, how are you thinking about where you're targeting your investments? So, um, what what I think is the kind of two major themes are, and, and I look at young private companies, often three three founders together. Um, mm -hmm. uh, things that are related to artificial intelligence and things that are related to uh, blockchain. Um, and what, what, when I look at AI, for all of the great work that's been done by Google and some other companies in the last couple of years, we're really at the starting point of um, putting AI into every part of the economy. Um, and that means finding great teams who are picking off um, really, really specific applications. So one of the companies um, I'm invested in is building autonomous uh, driving software uh, with a real focus on the European market. Um, and their hypothesis is that it's such a difficult problem, we can crack it, but cracking it for Scottsdale, Phoenix, and Seattle is very different to cracking it for Rome, Paris, and London, which in turn is difficult for cracking it for Jakarta, Shenzhen, and Karachi. Uh, and, and so, that's um, that's a particular area, and I think that that you know I wouldn't look at a deal now uh, that doesn't at some in some way have a strategy around um, AI as a kind of core software platform 
and acquisition of data um, as a second a second part of uh, of that because it's the data that often builds the moat. Um, just because you mentioned it, you want to, and you don't have to mention about how you're investing uh, or the type of what you're looking for. Just um, broad thoughts on blockchain and, and what the future there. Uh, well, I, I'm going to be really honest. There are a hundred people listening to this. I mean, I find blockchain really baffling. Um, as a technologist, uh, there is some really, really powerful um, elements to it, and I think that it has a tremendous opportunity um, once it becomes, as it matures as a technology, to solve all sorts of problems that we haven't figured out how to solve well and to solve them quite cheaply. Um, what the pity is that there's been so much speculative interest in blockchain um, and, and it, it's curious because it's not institutional speculation. It, it really is kind of um, mom and pop, you know, dentist level speculation um, that it's really distracting the technologists from the hard work of actually making the technology stable. Um, so I'm sure we'll get there with blockchain, but I, I think it's very hard for me to navigate all the noise um, uh, around it, which is which I think is a pity. So in so, sum, powerful technology, very immature right now. So I just put in a, <laughs> a kind of a joke on your slide on uh, total EVs on the road and how that's consistently been underestimated. Can, yeah. They always get the revisions higher, and I, I guess this explains why energy stocks never work. Um, so OPEC and Exxon and BP and et cetera estimates are always so low. And so no matter what the oil price is, I shouldn't say no matter, but you know, even if it goes up to 60, I guess that helps explain why energy is persistently under pressure. But um, in any event, this has been fascinating. Thanks so much for coming on. We're uh, at 11.10, so right at the, the moment when people need to, to wrap up and get back to trade apocalypse and thinking about that. Um, Zim, thank you again. Uh, your exponential view, you can see it here in the presentation. Um, so just type that in or you can reach out to Azeem, his information's here, or just reach out to me and I'll uh, ask him to add you to his uh, his list. So okay. uh, thanks so much for doing this. Anything, any last words, anything I forgot? Uh, no, it's been great to do this and thanks everybody All for right. listening. Yeah, thanks Cheers. so much. Have a great one and uh, have a good weekend everyone. Bye.